I'm John Ellis. And I'm Rebecca Darst. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, it's the News Items Podcast. Bringing you news items from our three major storylines, a world in disarray, the financialization of everything, and advances in science and technology. And sometimes, like today, for instance, we also talk politics. We'll start with important headlines from the world of science and tech. Then we'll move on to the news items. First, Democratic pollsters admit they botched it yet again. After that, Coinbase's IPO on Wednesday is shaping up to be massive. And in Germany, the far-right AFD party wants out of the European Union. And after the break, John interviews journalist and documentary filmmaker Chris Isham about the ongoing efforts to find the origins of COVID-19. All right, let's start with our science and tech headlines. First, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, has selected General Atomics, Lockheed Martin, and Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin to develop a nuclear-powered space rocket. The three companies will work to put a demonstration rocket into low orbit by 2025. According to Science News, quote, DARPA believes this technology will allow spacecraft to travel huge distances quickly. DARPA is a military organization, and the goal is to give the Pentagon the ability for, quote, rapid maneuver in the space domain, according to the agency's press release. John, I take it this is good news for the U.S. Space Force. I think so. DARPA was instrumental in the creation of what is now known as the World Wide Web. Mm-hmm has a track record of developing technologies that, you know, we see all around us. And so when they say that they are going to develop a nuclear-powered space rocket, you know, usually when you hear something like that, you would say they're not really going to do that. But in the case of DARPA, you would say they probably will. Well, there's also been tremendous interest among renewable energy adherents in the potential of small modular nuclear reactors as an energy source. And one of the primary use cases for SMRs uh, has been space, particularly using next generation non-proliferant fuels. So this is going to be an interesting development to watch. Yeah. Next. okay, John, so this one is not quite as grand, but Domino's is launching an autonomous vehicle program to deliver pizzas in Houston. It's partnered up with Neuro, a Silicon Valley startup that created the R2, a four-wheeled vehicle about the size of a motorcycle. The service will expand beyond Houston in the future, Neuro said in a statement to Reuters. All I could think of was people who wanted to get a pizza but didn't want to pay for it, Mm -hmm. lining the sidewalks waiting for Neuro to drive by. Yeah. And hijacking it. Um, ah! <laughs> but presumably they thought about that too. Yes. You know, or maybe they haven't. I don't you know it is yeah. with people like that. Given what we've learned from COVID, which is uh, services like Amazon and, you know, DoorDash and all of these services that deliver to your home, mm-hmm. the biggest cost in that obviously is labor. And companies like Domino's would like to reduce that cost to zero if possible. So it's not surprising that they are testing a robot delivery system. Bad news if you're trying to make ends meet, though, as a delivery person. Exactly. All right. That's it for DARPA and Domino's. On to the news items. First, from our electoral politics basket, on Tuesday, five Democratic polling organizations admitted to, quote, major errors in 2020. Democrats won the presidency, but they pulled it off with much thinner margins than expected. According to a joint memo the pollsters released, three possible factors that led to the polling failure were distrust of organizations, which they blame on Trump, underestimation of voter turnout among Republicans, and Trump voters ignoring pandemic restrictions, making them less likely to be at home to answer the phone than Democrats were. 
John, the latter, it makes me cringe. <laughs> it makes me cringe. Tell, tell us why. I tell you, I just, because I find the embedded condescension so overwhelming, and I'm sure that sentiment is not lost on the people they are hoping to poll. I think that's exactly right. Yes. Let's start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. The national polling had Biden up by 10. Biden ended up winning by about uh, 6%. Mm -hmm. So margin of error, not too bad, not awful. Where the polling was really awful was in the key states where again and again, whether it was Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, each state seemed to be uh, much better for Biden than it, in fact, was. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what the pollsters were, quote, apologizing for. Now, the pollsters found in their sort of postmortem of the 2020 election that whereas late movement toward Trump was a factor in 2016, it probably did not play a role in 2020 as poll numbers were fairly consistent throughout the election cycle. So rather, it was a failure to detect voters who were planning to vote for Trump. They concluded that they have consistently overestimated Democratic turnout relative to Republicans in a specific way. And this comes down to what they call, quote unquote, low propensity voters, people who they expect to vote rarely. The Republican share of the electorate exceeded expectations in this segment at four times the rate of the Democratic share. I think they got to do better. I mean, to be fair, not that we want to be fair, but uh, to be <laughs> fair. I want to be fair. I want to be fair. There is a bias amongst very conservative voters. They don't want to participate in mainstream media polling. They don't trust it, and they don't want any part of it. Right. When I started covering politics at NBC News in the 80s, we conducted Election Day voter polls, interviewing every seventh or ninth or 11th person that came out of a precinct in a representative sample mm -hmm. nationally and in key states. And the response rates were roughly... 100%. Mm -hmm. As time marched on, 2016 and again in 2020, the refusal rate amongst very conservative voters mm -hmm. sort of skyrocketed. I mean, people would see that it was a poll from NBC News, CBS News, the media consortium, and they would say, I don't want to participate. And so mm -hmm. on election nights, the teams at ABC News, CBS News, they would have a view of the electorate essentially that was wrong. And mm -hmm. so getting that group sampled is something that the pollsters are going to have to figure out how to do because otherwise their results are going to be wrong. I don't know what to say. Got to do better. Got to do better. Got to do better. Got to do right. better. Okay, so let's go to our financialization of everything storyline. On Wednesday, Coinbase will be the first major cryptocurrency-related company to go public. After a stellar first quarter with $1.8 billion in revenue, which is 58% more than it brought in in 2020, there are high hopes for the stock. So the company is going public on the NASDAQ exchange via a direct listing, which is to say it is not going to issue any new shares to the public. It is rather an opportunity for its existing employees and shareholders in the pre-public market to cash out. Can you tell us what Coinbase is? Coinbase is like PayPal for cryptocurrencies, basically. It is the payment infrastructure, if you will, for the trading of various cryptocurrencies, not just Bitcoin, but also 
XRP and Ethereum and, you know, some of the other crypto coins you may or may not be familiar with. And how does one use Coin? Well, you open an account and it has a couple of different sort of tiered service levels. It has a sort of Coinbase wallet service where regular rank and file retail investors can buy and sell Bitcoin. It also has a pro service level for more sort of institutional type or, you know, traditional Wall Street type traders who want to trade cryptocurrencies. It debuted a Visa debit card back in uh, last fall. I mean, so it's a sort of multi-service fintech company that is geared toward cryptocurrencies. I think this is important to note. Bitcoin hit a hit a record. It's trading at $63,000. So that is maybe a leading indicator for how this IPO is going to fare in the public markets. But among crypto adherents and Bitcoin adherents in particular, they love to tout the uh, characteristics of Bitcoin as an uncorrelated asset, that it is just this totally new wonky asset class that is not correlated to stocks or bonds. And when you list your shares on a public market like the NASDAQ, you introduce equity risk into the <laughs> asset. So it will have some correlation with other financial stocks. I mean, my... You know, my prediction, look, I mean, I don't, this is based on Rebecca's stupid gut, you know, hunch and nothing else. But I think that it'll be, maybe it'll be some kind of, maybe we'll see this as a near-term top. It's feeling a little toppy. Like the uh, <laughs> the Coinbase IPO will mark a top for Bitcoin. And eventually the thing's going to get picked up. It's going to get acquired by JP Martin. You know, Jamie Dimon, we know he's upset about all the attention that tech firms are getting at the uh, expense of old guard financial firm. Maybe Goldman Sachs will buy it. I think it's going to get bought. But that's the play, right? Is yeah. that it, it goes public and then it's acquired by a giant, right? Yeah. Well, we need to we need to have a point of view. Are we buy or I, or are we sell? So the direct listing this could value Coinbase at like a hundred billion dollars. This could be a hundred billion dollar company. By comparison, Facebook's IPO in twenty twelve was the value of the company at one hundred and four billion dollars. Do you think Coinbase is worth almost as much as Facebook or or what? I mean, it's that's really a question because I don't think. You know, it's not, as I was saying, it's not a pure play on Bitcoin. It has, it is a fintech company. It's more like PayPal for Bitcoin. And it's not exclusively exposed to Bitcoin. You can trade multiple currencies on it. It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's trading. It's a wallet. It's an education platform. It's really more a sort of next gen fintech play. It's potentially highly overvalued, I think. But, you know, look, I'm not a shareholder. So we'll list it as a sell then. Well, you know, you buy maybe buy the IPO and sell it real fast afterward. All right, let's move along. All right. Our last item comes from our World in Disarray storyline. Germany's nationalist right-wing party, Alternative for Deutschland, or AFD, has come out in support of a split from the European Union ahead of elections in September. We've been hearing all about Brexit for the last five years. Now, Dexit is making headlines. John, the AFD is polling around 11%, so we know the party itself isn't going to win. But are there signs that Dexit is gaining steam? Well, if we look at the AFD, they were in the low single digits in terms of political support in Germany, and they were able to jump up, if you will, in public estimation to low double figures in the 10 percentile because of the immigration issue. That's what really drove support their way. You know, there was a lot of concern that a very right-wing party in Germany riding the immigration issue would end badly. Mm -hmm. um, but 
support for the AFD then sort of went sideways and even down a little bit. And it's really in German politics, the Greens that are rising. The mm-hmm. AFD is either flat or declining a bit. And so if you're the AFD and you're looking at this rather unfortunate development, you say to yourself, we need an issue to ride. And given the problems with the rollout of the vaccine and the restrictions due to COVID, it's been a mess in Germany. And the blame for that goes in part to the fact that Germany is in the European Union. Mm-hmm. The AFD has fastened upon Dexit as a way for them to rehabilitate themselves politically. So they've made that their principal issue. And that is likely to help them. We'll see if they made the right bet. It is certainly the case that both the CDU, which is Angela Merkel's party, Mm -hmm. and the CSU, which is the minority party in the governing coalition, are losing altitude in public esteem, let's put Mm -hmm. it that way. The Greens are rising, but if AFD can can ride the uh, Dexit issue, then they will play a significant role in the formation of the next government. Do you think they can play a role in the government? Because all other parties in Germany have said they will not form a government with AFD. They won't until they have to, right? Yeah. You know, we'll see. And you don't have to have success right away to have success down the road. So with the party currently polling at 11 or 12 percent, more Germans, Eurointelligence reports, favor leaving the European Union than currently support the AFD. So by writing this issue, they unite all of their traditional supporters of the far-right nationalist persuasion and also access some new ones, which could put pressure on Germany's other parties to have to perform better in the election this fall. Yeah. They're not going to have political juice if they, you know, goose step around in German politics, right? Mm -hmm. It's not going to work. But if they rebrand essentially as the Dexit party, they're going to have much greater success. That's the bet that they're making. And given the disappointment with the current ruling coalition, it's not a bad environment to make that bet. Indeed. Well, that's it for our news items for today. After the break, we have an interview with Chris Isham. Chris was the head of the investigative unit at ABC News and then the Washington bureau chief of CBS News for 13 years. He's currently hard at work on a documentary about the origins of COVID-19. John, why were you interested in interviewing Chris? Well, News Items has been obsessed with the origins of the coronavirus going back all the way, actually, to January 4th, 2020. That's right. But, you know, the question of the origin of the virus is arguably the most important public health question in the world. And Chris has been doing really extensive reporting on what the uh, origins of the virus were. So... I thought it would be a good idea for him to come on the podcast and tell us what he's learned so far. Excellent. Well, I'm excited to hear this interview. We'll get into it after a word from our sponsor. We have today as our guest, Christopher Isham. Chris and I went to college together many, many years ago. In his professional life, Chris has been the head of the investigative unit at ABC News, For 13 years, he was the Washington bureau chief of CBS News and retired at the end of last year and has since then been working on a documentary, researching and reporting out on what happened in Wuhan. Chris is an extraordinary journalist. If 
people had listened to him after the first World Trade Center bombing, we would have taken Osama bin Laden a lot more seriously than we did. So I'm looking forward to the final results of the Wuhan investigation. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us today. Hi, John. It's great to be with you again. Chris, just to start, what's the general state of knowledge on the outbreak of the coronavirus? As you pointed out, we're more than a year into this virus, and we still don't know where it came from. And it's absolutely critical to understand where it came from uh, in order to try to prevent it from happening again. There has been a WHO Chinese investigation, but that created more questions than answers. And at this point, I think there is a real need for a real independent, transparent investigation. Four theories the WHO has put forward as to how the virus got to us. One, animal-to-human transmission. Two, animal-to-human transition via an intermediate host. Three, introduction via contaminated frozen food, which is the People's Republic's favorite. And then, four is the lab leak theory. Why should we take the lab leak theory seriously? One of the distinguishing characteristics of SARS-CoV-2 is that it is highly transmissible, as obviously we have seen, much more transmissible. The first SARS was interestingly more deadly, but nowhere near as transmissible or infectious. So this virus has the capacity to spread in ways that we simply haven't seen with other similar kinds of viruses, which is another indication that it could have been altered in some way or genetically engineered. One of the issues that a number of scientists are looking at with the Wuhan Institute is the the kind of research that it was conducting. It's called gain-of-function research. Essentially what this means is you, you take viruses that are not in themselves terribly infectious and making them more infectious, making them more transmissible modifying their genetic structure to allow them to become more infectious to human beings. The reason for this is to try to predict what could happen in nature and to potentially develop vaccines that could combat them. But it's very, very risky kind of research, and it's been shut down in this country before. It's very controversial, and I think there needs to be a debate about it. I think it was late January, maybe late February, that uh, The Lancet published an article that basically said that anybody who puts forward the idea that it was a lab leak is sort of a crazy conspiracist. Where is that coming from? Why the vehemence of critics of the lab leak theory? Well, this was a product of um, a very concerted campaign led by a fellow by the name of Peter Daszak, who runs something called the Eco Health Alliance, the nonprofit out of New York, that was actually involved directly in funding gain-of-function research. The U.S. government, through the NIH and the Department of Defense, has been involved in the past in funding of -of gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute. I mean, it's quite extraordinary when you actually think about it. And Mr. Daszak was the, the, the intermediary. He was the one who was involved in in channeling those funds. So he has an interest in providing a counter-narrative to the idea this could have come out of that lab for obvious reasons. He was also the U.S. representative on the WHO 
team, which caused a lot of people to say that he had a, a major conflict there. In Washington, first and foremost amongst those who doubted the bat-to-human angle was Matt Pottinger at the National Security Council. I, I was back and forth with Tom Cotton a lot in January about what had actually happened, if you will, and he too was very skeptical and, and had said to me that he had been briefed by a lot of different sources in the U.S. government. I wonder what, if you could give us like the timeline or sort of the narrative of the coronavirus hits and the U.S. government, the Trump administration, not Trump himself, but the National Security Council led by Pottinger, how they reacted. I think Matt uh, was one of the first people inside the administration who, first of all, recognized just how dangerous this virus was back in early 2020. Part of that is because Matt was actually a reporter for the Wall Street Journal in 2002 when SARS broke out and had direct exposure to that virus. And so he, he had a number of sources in China from his work at the Journal. Uh, since then, he actually went into the U.S. Marines after 9-11 and fought in Afghanistan. Uh, and then went into the government. So he's had an interesting career, but he speaks fluent Mandarin, and he is well aware of the way the Chinese government, Chinese Communist Party, has, has approached these problems. And he was able to call a number of his contacts in the health community and uh, learned very early on that this was a very dangerous virus and had human-to-human transmissibility, despite the fact that Chinese were denying that at that point up until January the 20th. And uh, he knew that this was going to be a big challenge. So fast forward, Matt has taken an interest while he was in the administration in not only making sure that the U.S. government was approaching this with the full assets it needed, but also trying to understand what the origins were. A parallel effort was being undertaken at the State Department under Pompeo, and they launched an investigation that was led by David Asher, who is a very talented investigator, who was able to declassify a number of the conclusions of that investigation, uh, which led to a fact sheet being put out on January uh, the 15th of this year, 2021, just before uh, the Trump administration left office. And that fact sheet, two major points. One was that the intelligence indicated that there was a cluster of sickness that broke out in Wuhan earlier in the fall of 2019. That's very important to get to the bottom of. The second point that they made in that declassified fact sheet was that the Chinese military, the PLA, was working with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, specifically on gain-of-function research. This is obviously potentially very important because it could indicate that the uh, Chinese government was, was working in a clandestine way to research possible pathogens that could be used in, in a biological warfare program. It was interesting. I read an interview with a scientist um, on the subject, and he said the first SARS outbreak brought together scientists from Asia and from the U.S., and he said it was scientist to scientist talking about scientific matters and that the level of cooperation and so on and so forth was as good as you could hope. This one, the scientist to scientist talking about scientific matters, 
is completely off the table. That's not happening. China will not allow this to happen. My question is about the WHO. You know, they were there, what, 16 months or 15 months after the outbreak, which would seem to be about 14 and a half months too late. Do you know what they, how they conducted the investigation? Well, they interviewed scientists, but those interviews were done in highly controlled environments with minders and with a set of questions that were agreed upon. The team essentially had to take the word of the scientists, all of whom were obviously approved by the Communist Party, and kind of leave it at that. They were not allowed to see any raw data. So, for example, research would indicate that they had information that perhaps there had been an earlier outbreak. They wanted to see the health records. Uh, Those records were not made available. They were not able to see the databases in the labs. So there was a lot of a lot of raw data that simply was not made available to them. And and the WHO, even the director general of the WHO, uh, admitted after they came out with their report that that it was flawed and that the lab leak theory uh, needed to, to be more fully examined. Let's take it up to the present day. What is the government, the Biden administration's view of this and what what are they doing? What are they demanding? What do they want to know? When the WHO report came out, Blinken, I think, was the first to basically take a gigantic bucket of cold water and throw it all over them. But you followed this very closely. Where's the administration at? They've said the right things. They've expressed skepticism of the WHO investigation from the beginning, which I think is appropriate. They uh, put together a group of of 14 countries, uh, mostly democracies around the world, that called for a more independent and transparent investigation. So they're on record as asking for a new investigation that would be thorough and that would begin to really examine all the evidence in a dispassionate way. We'll see if that happens. It's a very honorable statement, and I think it's important that the administration get on record as asking for that. I personally think that it's going to be very hard for the WHO to to mount a more thorough investigation that gets to the kind of data that we'd really need to see to have a, a really independent and fully transparent investigation. Well, we've taken a lot of your time, but it's been a terrific and really informative interview, and we thank you very much for doing the podcast today. I enjoyed it. Great talking with you, John. That was a great interview, John. Gain-of-function research, that's wild. As you mentioned, News Items has been on the case of COVID since January 4th, 2020. So this is not a news story to you. It is an ongoing investigative odyssey and the best analysis you will find anywhere on the planet is on news items. So you got to Google news items, John Ellis, Substack, you will find it there. That's the best promotion of news items I've ever heard. I'm not sure it's entirely true, true, but I'll take it. It's totally true. Uh, Listeners should also know that Rebecca's website, Investable Universe, is about as good as it gets. And that's easy. It's just investableuniverse.com. Thank you, John. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with more of the news from our three major storylines, financialization of everything, a world in disarray, and advances in science and technology. See you then.